www.ghostsandmysteries.org. So welcome to Live Culture. Thank you very much for being here. I have Lynn Stein with me today, who is the author of Shedding the Shackles, Women's Empowerment Through Craft, a book that just came out on Bloomsbury Press, or it's Herbert Press, actually, I guess. Yes, it's, a, it's an imprint of Bloomsbury. And you, you, you did this book during COVID, um, which must have presented unique challenges, as I understand it. 
Yes, absolutely. Well, to be fair, the majority was written really before COVID started, which is a jolly good job because uh, actually both my husband and I really before lockdown actually happened here, right at the very beginning, we got the virus as well. So we were pretty ill, not hospitalized, thank heavens, but we were ill for oh, a good three weeks. So, so I was, you know, it was really fortunate that I had actually researched and written and, you know, got through most of the book, but we were due to actually go to Mexico because I was going to travel to Chiapas and Oaxaca. And of course, that actually had to be cancelled. I'll put the kibosh on that. This yeah. this book appears to be something that was years in the making. It's it's many it spans many countries and has a lot of different kinds of projects, including sort of intriguing things like aloe lace and paper cuts made with sheep shears and things like that. Absolutely. Can, yes. can you yes. talk a little bit about? Give us a little taste of what some of the countries and places the book spans are. Sure. So, well, as you said, I mean, in the first section where I dealt with not not only individual craftspeople, um, artists, makers, but largely that is, and there are quite a number of UK makers whose work I'm also very familiar with, but also Holland, Israel, Japan, and more. But then with the 12 initiatives I've written about, um, there's quite a number of Mexican ones, South Africa, India. Australia was in there too. There was a, there's a fabulous project involving lamps made out of woven soda pop bottles, and that spans many countries. But one of, the, one of the more spectacular ones is the one from Australia. I, yes, I'm with you there. And actually, it's very much, it's sort of, not intentionally, but I think it very, very much resembles kind of the Aboriginal dreamings, really. Absolutely. The yeah. cir- collect, collected circles, these kind of constellations of circles. Absolutely. And the whole, the pet lamp project, which was initiated, devised, run by, um, was born in Madrid, in Spain, mm-hmm. but in Barcelona. He's um, He has degrees in business, but he's also a product and industrial designer. So the main focus of this project, which spans across every continent um, in the world, is is the use of the PET bottle, the plastic mm-hmm. pot bottle. Right. Because it's one of the least biodegradable items. It takes hundreds and hundreds of years to... And he is a great believer, really, in repurposing, reuse rather than recycling, which in so many areas of the world is just not a possibility. There aren't the facilities to... Even in North America here, they're they're doing less and less recycling, and it's harder and harder to get people to yes. recycle the materials. So for people who are listening, the, the PET bottle, the is it's a large soda bottle, and the project involves using the top part as a place to put in a light bulb and the bottom part gets cut into strips and then cultures that have weaving as part of their traditional craft weave whatever their different materials correct i mean they all look very different i saw lots of different countries there sustainable indigenous materials localized Mm -hmm. wherever the projects have been done and the and the result is these incredibly stylish handmade lamps that you would never guess involve anything as as mundane as a pop bottle. Um, Absolutely. 
they're stunning. I mean, I first came across them and then I had to sort of investigate the whole, um, you know, the whole project. But they're in a they're actually in a hotel restaurant. Also, there's an installation not far from where I am. And I just they absolutely, uh, you know, have the wow factor completely. So they're they're a commercially available product. Um, they are. Yeah, yeah they are. Yeah. And that's yes. part of the point is to actually support the communities that are making them. Absolutely. Yes. And also very, very much, you know, respect their cultural traditions as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that that kind of ties in beautifully with the whole concept of the book. Um Shedding the shackles of women's empowerment through craft. And you're, you yourself are a textile artist and have obviously traveled widely. When did you start thinking of this as a project, as a, as a thing to put together? And, and why shedding the shackles? What shackles are we shedding? Well, it's a good question. I suppose, you know, in my travels, which, you know, have... I've still much to do, of course, but I'm always on the lookout for I'm I'm very interested in folk art and sort of localized craft. So so I'm a collector myself and also I think a frustrated curator sometimes. So I'm very, you know, picky about the placement of everything. And um I just started to get interested in and I mean I actually think that the book has sort of exhibition the contents of the book have exhibition potential also televisual potential in a sense but I suppose I first conceived the idea as more of a kind of coffee table book with stunning images and I think you know it is photographically if I can say so you know it is photographically kind of interesting and um but of course the more I thought about it the more I realized that so many of these crafts have been made by women and actually do involve techniques that have been passed down matriarchally, in some cases, very impressively too. They've been contemporized and have moved on perhaps from the historical ways of of doing those processes, really. Right, they've adapted to current times. Yes, so and they've adapted to consumer markets in some cases, in some cases very successfully. I sort of assumed that shedding the shackles had to do, you know, with the fact that many people who are making these amazing things are women who are in um, environments where they're poverty stricken and they don't have a way of, of making money. And yet they have this incredible skill set. And this is a way for them out of that. And also you talk in the introduction about the sort of therapeutic qualities of, of craft. And I think that's something that hopefully the rest of everybody has noticed during COVID lockdown. <laughs> How important it is to connect with our hands, how important touching and making are. Yeah, very, very much the healing power of craft. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds a cliche, really, but I'm interested myself because I've run so many workshops with so many community projects. And I I've witnessed the visible difference in women coming together. I mean, sadly, not that many men engaged, not, not here anyway. Um, but, yeah, women coming together and session after session opening up with one another because the hands are busy and they're creating and it's kind of a 
a less threatening environment because of that, really. They're less self-conscious to do so. And I think, uh, yes, a, a sort of degree of intimacy kind of mm-hmm. actually builds up. And I think that's very much exemplified in Oh, what I have to say about the Coral Reef project and, Mm -hmm. yes, various projects within the book, really. But, you know, when you ask about, you know, the title of Shedding the Shackles, yes, I think that is can be seen on so many levels, really, whether it's just mutual support and gatherings as you know in several of the South African projects, apart from earning them some kind of living, there is a great culture of kind of sisterhood and what they call Ubuntu, which signifies that. But yes, in some cases, projects that deal with AIDS awareness, for instance, like the Siazama project and Monkey Biz, which is, you know, they've had large focuses on because it hit, you know, such a high percentage of the population. And can you talk a little bit more in detail about about those for listeners who don't know what those projects are? Okay, so the Siazana project was mm-hmm. a collaboration between um, between Professor Kate Wells, who was a design consultant, and also several design companies and platform design platforms in Sweden as well and also a glassblower. So the women were encouraged to, there were initially, I think, 12, 12 women involved in KwaZulu area, and they were encouraged to sort of write about their fears and their hopes after having several meetings of you know, mm-hmm. together, their hopes and their fears around AIDS and being stigmatized as women, just their their livelihoods, really, and their lifestyles. And then ultimately, these were translated into because they were familiar with beadwork um, as an art form. They then made constructed sentences, which were strung onto wire in beadwork. And then molds, wooden molds were made of these vessels and these were taped around, the sentences were taped around the vessels in beadwork. And then these were sent to Sweden and they were done by artisan glassblower. Um, they were put through a furnace and, and they're beautiful glass vessels with the, with the beads infused inside. So these have to be high quality, pure glass beads in order not to shatter in the glassblowing process. So when I looked at the pictures, I actually hadn't realized that there was glass behind them because they look like wire mesh with the with the beads strung onto them. And they're very beautiful, like you say, and transparent. And you very slowly, if you're me, very slowly realize that there are words in them because they have this kind of, they're all strung together and it's somewhat abstracted at this point. And you can read it, but it took me a while to to actually see the words in there. Yeah. And they're, they're very yeah, lovely kind of visual poetry. Yeah, absolutely. And I've tried to sort of indicate the process, you know, within writing about that project and sort of mm-hmm. show it from its beginning. So I think one of the makers is actually holding up the kind of before it's gone into the glass process, really glass making process. Yes. in the, You do have pictures of it, but for some reason the part with the glass on the inside when you, there's one picture that shows them kind of finished and it, yeah. it, it didn't quite, didn't quite immediately grab the fact that there were, there was glass behind it. It just seemed like a sort of mesh work. Right. So those, I mean, I love the idea of that combination of like blown glass and the beads and, and of course their ability to 
say things about their own lives. And you have been listening to Live Culture with your host Martha Willett Lewis on WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. This month, my guest is Lynn Stein, the author of Shedding the Shackles. Yeah, there is something really wonderful and about, about the way that touching and count. So there's a, you were talking about the community aspect, but there's also a kind of meditative aspect to all of these things, which often involves counting, but things like threading beads or knitting, you have to count. And it's very calming to actually be touching these things as you're working. And the sort of repetitive nature of a lot of it is also really good for soothing, soothing. And, you know, when you were saying that not men, many men do it, but there was a, there have been several programs in the States, at least to get men in incarcerated men knitting because it is actually incredibly calming and it, and it feels great. It feels great to touch and count. There's something about that that we're hardwired to do in some way or another. There is a a prison project actually called Fine Cell Work here that um, kind of taught men to embroider Mm -hmm. um, and create beautiful products. But yes, I I have found, you know, over decades that it's seldom that men will sign up for workshops, not to say that we haven't got, you know, incredible male fabric artists in this country. So it's strange. <laughs> yes, that that's an issue. The the who signs up for what part is has oh, been sure. uh, always interesting to me as both an artist and an educator. Women do appear to be more group joiners on things. So tell me about a few more projects. I love the aloe lace, for instance, or pick out a couple of favorites and tell them about. And it's a little because it's radio. Try to make it visual so that we can picture it. Okay. Um, well, this the Bosna quilt Werkstatt one as well, which I think is lovely in terms of, well, rather like on a shorter term basis, Alice Kettle's piece, the work with um, that she did with refugee communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so the fact that um, with the Bosna quilt Werkstatt, Lucia Linhart Giesinger, she's an Austrian living in the Vorarlberg area, and during the Bosnian War, she she got together with several female refugees, and they were none of them, in fact, including Lucia, actually had quilting expertise really. So they kind of learnt together, and and I think this project has now been running for twenty five or so years, and they've exhibited all over the place. She actually does the designs, but the women do the quilting. They're still they're still working actually back in, now in Gorazda in, in Bosnia. So it's an ongoing project. They exhibit, they have about 12 exhibitions a year, obviously not during COVID. But the work is, it's very sort of pared down, yeah, almost almost Mark Rothko-like, really, mm-hmm. in its um, so color fields, big yes. blocks of color, color fields. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Very sort of simplistic and beautiful and calming. But I think also in terms of the impact upon that community, I mean, you know, she said that they had all levels of society, really, you know, from radiologists to cleaners. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of formed a very cohesive group. And of course, really enabled them to talk about their 
shattered lives and, you know, deal with the trauma of that. It, it is really curious. Um, you know, uh, Brian Eno in his John Peel lecture talked about the way that art allows us, uh, it's a kind of social glue that surrounds us, but it's also a way to talk about things that we might not be able to talk about otherwise. And it, it really is amazing the way that it does that. And it's both through finished works of art that people visit in exhibits, but also the process of making. Um, Definitely. It allows you to become calm within your own head, but also engage with people in a different way. Yes, yes. Yes, as you say, something sort of give concrete form in a way to that which might have been unspeakable. Right. I think that's right. I think that's right. It'll, it sort of allows you to sort of circle around it in a way. And sure. Chew it over. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So your book is really beautiful, very visually rich. I can see why it would it would actually be quite good as as video or or television because because of people's hunger to reconnect with their hands and with making and so sort of watching videos of people making things is pretty satisfying as well and and people are interested in it. And also the fact that it kind of it crosses so many levels, you know, anthropology, history, mm-hmm. politics, um, yeah. And language barriers. You don't need, Absolutely. like, to watch somebody make something, you don't need to speak the same yeah. language. You just need to show them. <laughs> and it's very evident, I think, in the sort of um, matriarchal, strong matriarchal traditions that, you know, it hasn't depended upon language. It is something that you've sat with your grandmother mm-hmm. and absorbed absorbed really and that's so in yeah in Wayu culture in in Colombia the Wayu machilas which I'm sure you see in evidence kind of in, in the states as well as we do here but of course so describe those a little bit right so I suppose I mean they call them woven but in fact they use kind of um, different sizes of crochet hooks to make them and they're they're bags but I mean the Wayu people also in similar ways make instead of sleeping on beds, like we do, I suppose, um, they also make their own hammocks mm-hmm. within their so two, two house, two room homes. So from, from being small children, they are taught, they're taught everything, I suppose they feel women need to know, and certainly to make these bags. Are um, they dyeing the, the, the what, what kind of twine is it? And are they dyeing it? Because these are very brightly colored. The patterns are, are part of what's really compelling about them. It is now because they have access to, you know, aniline and chemical dyes. But of course, years ago, they would have been made with wool and natural fibers. Now they're made um, largely with acrylic yarns. Mm-hmm. So and there's a they some of them are made with double threads some of them are made with single threads but yes i mean you they're very bright typically very bright patterns mm-hmm. with sort of their cultural motifs and a lot of sort of geometric looking uh, motifs and quite often it's they've usually got circular bases as well mm-hmm. so they can be different sizes and the men don't do any of this, but occasionally they do do the weaving of the straps. Interesting. Interesting. So it's definitely divided by gender who's doing it. 
Yeah, absolutely, yes. And actually, it's a very highly matriarchal society. The women are the governors of that society. They are the leaders. And also, the children take the maternal surname. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it is. So I just want to say that I'm in discussion right now with Lynn Stein, who's the author of Shedding the Shackles, Women's Empowerment Through Craft, which came out in 2021 through Bloomsbury and is a deeply visual exploration of textiles from all over the world made by women. And did you take the photographs yourself? Where did these images come from? Because they are very striking. They are. And yeah, I mean, obviously, always needed very, very high quality images. So some myself, some some my husband, mm-hmm. some items I also have in my possession. But um, in a lot of cases, actually, from those initiatives or, you know, the um, coordinators of those initiatives. They've created... Because a lot of the pictures are are of people actually working together and making all of these things. Absolutely. And I really wanted to have a combination of showing the actual process of, you know, how the things are made, but also that community and that very sort of, I'll use the word sisterhood again, that very sort of female sisterhood kind of aspect of it as well. Yes. You have multi-generations, you know, the pictures of children being taught. And do you think girls are are interested in in learning about traditional crafts or are they more interested in looking towards more modern things at this point? Well, I mean, in in many cases, you know, being social enterprises, some of the, you know, part of the agendas are to kind of provide education and you know better welfare so so kids are even going to sort of tertiary stage or to university in some cases but I think where projects kind of lead to sort of successful outcomes and everything I think in many cases they're recognizing the craft as as a viable way of earning extra income and and improve, you know, improvement for the community, really. I also think that if you're, it's a, it's a powerful model if you're seeing older people, older women who are deeply engaged in something and, and getting something out of it. it it's meaningful to the community. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that it would take on stature in, in children's minds too, right? That this is something that adults do and, and is satisfying and rich and, and part of what we make. And I think it's teaching teaching a child actually things that we otherwise quite easily lose um, these days. It's like patience and yeah. resilience and yeah. eye hand coordination. Absolutely, That's yes. a, yeah. So you yourself are a textile artist, and this, and this book spans. Well, let's see. There's lace and beadwork and quilting and basketry. Um, what else? And what else is in here? <laughs> mache. Yeah. Am I missing anything? Um, well, towards the end of the book in southern Mexico, there's also Mujeres, and excuse my terrible Spanish, but Mujeres del Barro Rosso. Mm-hmm. So they are ceramicists. And right. That, Those things are beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Yes. yes. So and they, you know, they've had great success, and they've like they've now got a Japanese-designed 
kiln, which allows them to sort of fire at higher temperatures and, you know, have greater production. So that's, you know, an, an initiative involving hmm, several hundred women. And does the clay come locally? Are they digging the clay and processing it themselves? Yeah, or is it at this and point, fact, it- yeah. And before the before the new kiln and everything, they were really doing everything, like creating their own firing, mm-hmm. you know, open, open air kiln, etc. Yes. So they do. They collect the clay, and so global interest really changes things quite a bit because as the demand goes up, of course, you have to produce more, and. It means that things change, like you get a new kiln, which might be easier to use, but it must change the process in some fundamental way, or using a different kind of clay would make it all different, or even using acrylic yarn. So many of the materials are radically different from what they were, say, 100 years ago. In some cases, yes. I mean, I think pet lamp is kind of, you know, the pet lamp um, project is a good example of that not being so, you know, I'm, I mean, I don't want to use the word compromise because in some cases it's not necessarily to, a compromise. It's an adaption yeah, to the contemporary absolutely, world, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. But I mean, sort of thinking about it further, of course, in some cases, these craft items also face, you know, being endangered because there's cultural appropriation, you know. Sure. Uh, copy, cheaper copies are made using mm-hmm. inferior fabrics and, you right. know, adapting those indigenous patterns. Right. If it becomes too popular, then all of a sudden it, it makes it. Yeah. So it's yeah. a bit of a double-edged sword. It's like, and then I also question, you know, I mean, gosh, COVID, of course, for everybody has had a lot of downsides and so of course the tourism that a lot of these initiatives have depended upon mm-hmm. um, it's, it's not been there for them but on the other hand it's made them become a lot more tech savvy There's, you know sure because you know because they've had to become that way and in many cases that's been proven to be very successful for them well, and and while there may be immediate financial losses from l- less tourism, tourism has also been busy destroying the planet. The the fact that Absolutely. we can, right, so there's yeah. there's <laughs> there's yes. probably some benefits, although it's they're, they're bad for the rest of us who love to travel, but it may not be the worst thing in the world. And it's just lovely not to see to, to be able to see and hear birds in the sky rather than aircraft. Yes. And to not have every interesting place overrun with billions of people trampling True. through it and using all of the resources up, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've been listening to Live Culture with your host, Martha Willett Lewis on WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. This month, my guest is Lynn Stein, the author of Shedding the Shackles. In terms of the materials, there's a strong eco bent to some of these projects as well that I think is kind of interesting. So not only has the material changed because because there are new dyes and new, probably less expensive or more easily available materials, but also some of the things are are focused on sustainability or in using things that that are discarded. Um, And that also brings up the issue of 
with very traditional materials, one has to gather them oneself or trade or barter for them. Whereas now we're talking about a world where one has to purchase things. But but then you can bypass that if you're using things that are being discarded. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, the Madhubani papier-mâché and how, how that's adapted and adapting really. And, you know, obviously recycled paper and Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that project where does it take place and what do the things look like yes so that's in bihar in Mm -hmm. in, uh, it's not far from so it's madhubani in in bihar which is like northern india yeah northeast india it's up near nepal really and oh since for the last couple of centuries really madhubani painting has been a tradition, wall paintings, both interior and exterior. So a lot of the papier-mâché work, the imagery on it, relates very much to that. And so they make vessels and pots and decorative items, but they've really expanded into sort of making like furniture, children's toys. And um, so it's a very traditional way of decorating, Mm -hmm. decorating the three-dimensional items as well. So they have a, a black outline, which is very much like the, the Madhubani wall paintings, but these are always infilled with like bold shapes and um, very much based on flora and fauna and mythological themes, really. And um, so they, they've sort of adapted their techniques to sort of make it a rather quicker process by also using um, like steel found in the home molds, really, to. And they're also looking at they're more. They're pressing the paper pulp into the molds. Uh, yes. The paper pulp, yes. pressing it into the mold, letting that dry, then painting it. That's right. That's right. And also they're looking at kind of ecological ways of packaging um, the goods and everything. So, so certainly rather than plastic, they're looking at sort of cloth and Mm -hmm. more um, packaging. And where, where do they get the paper to make the paper pulp with? Is that sourced from Mm, one particular place or maybe not? I mean, maybe it's it's a lot of paper waste really. And yes. Yes, but it is very much sort of, I mean, I'm not even showing it as ground up as it is really, but um, in the book, but it is, you know, it gets sort of shredded to a pulp really. And mm-hmm. then it's, it's mixed with uh, fenugreek also, which is... That's magic. interesting. I cook with fenugreek sometimes. Yes, exactly. So what is, the fenugreek, what is the fenugreek doing in there? Is it adding, adding kind of blue? Well, it's actually, it gives a fragrance, but it also is a deterrent to insects as well. Interesting. Yes. yes. That's a good tip to know. Yes, it is. For those of us who work in paper, no, very good. Um, well, I guess it depends on the climate that you're, you know, working in. But yeah, obviously that's an important issue there. Right. It's it's presumably more humid there. Are they working in Bihar? Are they working together in? Are they working in their individual homes, or are they working on um, in? Is that, are there well, workshops or studios where this is taking place? And somebody must have developed the recipes and so forth. Well, then, uh, yes, adapted and. 
um, I forget now sort of what year this happened, but actually the, um, there's a papier-mâché cluster with the, with the Design Institute and certain NGOs and the help of DASCAR, they developed a papier-mâché cluster mm-hmm. um, where they looked at ways of adapting techniques and sort of increasing production and improving livelihoods, really through and actually attracting young people back into the making of papier-mâché because they, you know, found there was a market for it or potentially potential development. So what's interesting in in a a lot of what you're telling me is that there's either been a designer or somebody who's come in maybe from the outside, but with some kind of business model version of, of taking a traditional method of production and kind of making it so that it could actually function within our marketplace. Yes, I think that's quite often the case, really. As I say, Mm -hmm. you know, it has been, yes, it has been with, say, Monkey Biz, um, Mm -hmm. you know, how that was, you know, started, initiated. It is with Pet Lamp Project, um, yeah, yes. it's, it it's come up several times in this conversation. Yeah. Sure. So I'm I'm in discussion right now with Lynn Stein, who's the author of Shedding the Shackles, Women's Empowerment Through Craft, which is out now through Bloomsbury and which is a, it's a richly visual book of images and crafts made by women throughout the world that are changing their lives in multiple ways, I would say. And let's talk about monkey biz, because for people who haven't seen it, they're what they make are these incredible, some of them quite large scale beaded works. You, they're very clearly the animal that they're they're supposed to be, but they're also sort of monsters and extra creations. And they have a kind of wonderful cartoony zaniness to them. That's really amazing. They're graphically quite striking. They are. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about monkey biz? Where is it? What is it? Yes. Okay. So this is in the Cape, Cape Town area and sort of in the also kind of around the shantytown areas of Cape Town. It was started around 2000, I think, by a ceramicist mm-hmm. and another art collector, an artist. And yeah, I mean, it's they're still using a lot of the kind of lateral and vertical traditional methods of, of you know, beadwork, really. But oh, wait, sewn beadwork. Yes. But the emphasis very much is kind of for all the all the beadworkers to actually have their own creative expression, really. And you can clearly see that in the works. As you say, they're very kind of zany, flamboyant. Yeah, um, they're very flamboyant. So the process, it's it's sewn beadwork, but they're they're three-dimensional, almost like stuffed toys or something like that. They, they um, are. Absolutely. Is it, what is the process? There's an arm and then stuffing is wrapped around it. And then the some, yeah, sometimes the legs are wired as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's a cloth armature, and then the beadwork is stitched onto that. And that's an incredible amount of labor. And each one is is unique. There, there are not multiples of one design. No, no, they're all one-offs, really. And, and they've done collaborations with, like, they've done collaborations with the Haas Brothers, who are based mm-hmm. in L.A., to create 
huge, yeah, huge pieces. And so they've been extensively exhibited and shown at uh, Design in Daba over there. And yes, various. So it really is life-changing if you're involved with with this project. Absolutely. Uh I mean, the the collaboration with the Haas Brothers, I think for four years at least, um, fully employed 16 bead workers. And, and yes, it has given them, particularly, you know, the, the most talented bead workers, it has given them a great degree of employment. How many people do you think are involved? In, and you said 16, which doesn't yeah, give at, that time. Yeah, no, at that time, but there must be many more than that who are, yes, this looks like I a think, big initiative. Yes. I mean, I think there are about 200 people now currently involved. So what kind of textile work are you most interested in now having finished the book? What what's occupying your mind in terms of textiles and global craft and it could be local um, things too. Yes. Well, you you mentioned sort of the latch hook before which I always used to sort of give quite disparaging comments about because my you know if I say I use rag rug techniques my best way of kind of describing them would be kind of I don't know whether you've looked at my website (laughs) they're like textile mosaics so very elaborate and yeah with a they're very kind of packed densely with recycled fabrics and fibers and everything so I my first book for Bloomsbury was actually a book about rag rugs and the history of the craft with kind Mm -hmm. of several projects and other makers and I'm actually just in the midst of writing a new edition of that. So actually, okay. yeah, I, as you say, during COVID, I mean, there's been a proliferation of images and then you can't help noticing how things like needle punching and latch hooking have, you know, become... All of it's exploded. Yes, yes it's- it really has. <laughs> so rather than kind of just write more about rag rugs, et cetera, I kind of wanted to write also about how you can achieve similar surfaces, but using a whole variety of different different tools and very much more yarn-based, but very tactile, very kind of sensuous, mm-hmm. um, sort of luxuriant textiles, really. And are these using recycled materials as well? It sounds like you could use a lot of different kinds of things. And one of the pleasures of rag rug making is is the fact that it's made out of scraps, right? Abs- absolutely. I mean, uh, yes. And I have done literally projects that where I've used kind of uh, bin bags, mm-hmm. you know, refuse, <laughs> I should speak right. in there. Garbage uh, bags. <laughs> uh, refuse bags and biscuit wrappers. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, using things like punch needle, it's a rather finer, well, it is a finer tool and it's you much... Put it, you put the object on a pad and punch it through, you kind of stab it through with the yes. object on the pad, right? Yes, but you're really threading it up with yarn rather mm-hmm. than using, using fabric. Um, so yeah, it's fun exploring that and ultimately being able to kind of use a whole host of, because I also use an electric tufting gun in my work. So just having that combination of kind of tools and processes, I find really interesting. So talk to me about the electric punching gun. Right. Okay. (laughs) That's a whole different animal, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. It's a shame I can't kind of turn things around and show (laughs) Uh, yes, it is, you know, and I've noticed again that uh, like on TikTok, you know, many people are using different different variety of 
tufting gun to mine, but mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of tufting guns on social media, though. It appears to be quite yes. the thing. Yes. yes, it does, doesn't it? I think it's really, I mean, I've been using it for 30 years, but I think mm-hmm. it's current again during COVID has really captured people's imaginations. And so not everybody does, but because mine is quite a sort of heavy pressurized tool, I have a floor to ceiling frame in my studio. Wow. Which, okay. Yeah, which I have to stretch. I mean, it's lined with carpet gripper mm-hmm. strip. And I have to stretch. It's like, a, it's not Hessian because the Hessian burlap would get burlap. Yeah. Yeah. So it's um, it's 100% polyester. It's like a finer mm-hmm. backcloth and work through that. So you're actually working from back to front. Yes. You know, and so can, you, that, can you run around the side of it and it looks exactly see what you're doing that. Front yes. Of that? Yeah. Yes. So people always say, oh, that must be a really quick way of working. But actually, the way the, the way I work, it really isn't because they're very intricate designs, I suppose. And so so a lot of my time is taken up with like carving and cutting at the front as well. So, yes, constantly. Sculpting, sculpting the, the, the absolutely as they've been put in. So for people who haven't seen one of these things, it's a little bit like the difference between what a construction staple gun or nail gun would be like compared to using a hammer and nail or a hand stapler. Um, So you can kind of punch much more quickly and with much more velocity. Yes, absolutely. And for instance, if you were just doing just um, a plain carpet, yes, you could do it much more quickly than hand doing it, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's a fantastic tool and allows you to get very kind of concave, convex mm-hmm. um, shapes well. Just by how you rotate or handle the gun. Uh, yeah. Well, how much, also how much fabric, you know, the, mm-hmm. the amount of fabric strip you put through there That's really. True. Pushes, right. so it pushes it out at the other side. So that so you've been busy doing that quite a bit, and that book will be coming. The reissue or the refreshed version of that will come out when. So that's due for publication two thousand and thirteen. Two thousand and thirteen. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> you have a little bit of time left for that one. You have been listening to Live Culture with your host, Martha Willette Lewis, on WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. This month, my guest is Lynn Stein, the author of Shedding the Shackles. You know, one of the things about crafting, especially with sort of bits of things that have been found, is that you're taking something that that is kind of unwanted or unloved and making it into something that's embellished and gorgeous and handmade. And there's something really satisfying about that, too. You're making something really beautiful out of um, and presumably meaningful as well. A lot of the pieces in your your book are fairly conceptual pieces. Yes, yes, yes. The the frontispiece has women in Ireland. I may have this wrong. Women in Ireland who have chained themselves to the parliament wall. Is that right? So it's not not in Ireland, although this is where it's kept. But these are are arpilleras from Chile Mm -hmm. during um, Pinochet's regime. So they were actually protest textiles but the connection with Ireland is because they have at um, the University of Ulster in Northern Ireland they have what's called um, 
conflicts textiles connection ah collection. and what is what is conflicts textiles what what are yeah. those okay so they're textiles that have been made as as protests against mm-hmm. regimes governments are they used as as signage as as actual like but the arpilleras were actually made by you know i mean um women who as brothers husbands sons disappeared without mm-hmm. trace so they were made to record that and eventually and because they looked like quite naive and primitive the government you know officials nobody took any notice of them and they managed to get them out of the country so the um, whole point was to make something that that could slip by the authorities absolutely eventually it wasn't it wasn't at first conceived like that, but that's how it became. Yes, that's kind yes. of wonderful because it is true that that women <laughs> women's work gets largely, you know, I think it's things have changed quite a bit now. But in the past, it was seen as women's work and therefore something like domestic and not particularly worthy of too much attention. Yes, but yes, I mean, you know, it really is wonderful. And one one of the apieras that are featured, which is entitled La Cueca Sola, which is so all the women are actually wearing badges in it of images of their husbands. But it's like, it means like um, La Cueca. Cueca is like their traditional dance. But mm-hmm. they're saying that now they're dancing alone. And actually it inspired Sting to write, to write a song that he performed, you know, um, mm-hmm. also protesting against the regime. Right. It really managed to draw the kind of attention that needed to be drawn to it. Yeah. 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 That's a, that's amazing. And it's, it's powerful stuff. So shedding the shackles is available now at bookstores. Is there a website that people can go to? Well, Bloomsbury's website, Herbert Press's website. There's quite Mm -hmm. a bit of stuff on Instagram, Amazon, of course, (laughs) all the bookstores and my own website as well. Shall I? So it's, lynnstein.com fantastic uh lynnstein i want to thank you very much for being a guest on live culture it's been a pleasure having you and thank you very, i can't wait to see you very with, much <laughs> i can't wait to see what you come up with next thank you so much thank you bye-bye bye-bye thank you for listening to live culture this broadcast will be available as a podcast on the live culture playlist on the wpkn soundcloud page And then we'll be back again next month on the final Saturday of the month with a new discussion about visual art. To find out more, please join the Live Culture Facebook page. And in the meantime, please take care. Bye-bye.
Support comes from Mocha Westport, presenting the Music at Mocha concert series featuring a diverse lineup of classical, jazz, and pop performances. The concerts will be held outdoors at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Westport, Connecticut through October. A variety of ticket packages are available, including a season pass, separate packages for classical, jazz, and pop, or for individual performances. More information at mochawestport.org. Support comes from the International Festival of Arts and Ideas and their Labor Day weekend events on the New Haven Green. Saturday features DJ Fire, The Tynes, and gospel singer Don Tallman. Sunday brings a five-hour mini-festival of dance, storytelling, spoken word, and musical acts, including the Kennedy administration, Ecuador's Paco Godoy on accordion, and L.A.'s Durand Bernard. More information and reservations at artidea.org slash Labor Day. WPKN's environmental film series returns to the Bijou Theater Wednesday, September 8th with the documentary Kiss the Ground. This film examines the many ways that soil may be the key to combating climate change and preserving the planet. The solution is right under our feet. Narrated by Woody Harrelson, tickets are $15 and doors open at 6.30. Join WPKN Wednesday, September 8th for this provocative film at the Bijou Theater in downtown Bridgeport. Masks are required. Vaccinations encouraged. For more information... Go to WPKN.org. Can you believe this summer is almost over? And that means WPKN's vacation from fundraising is over as well. We're going to have our first fundraiser in nearly two months because we need to keep raising money for our operating expenses and the most important transition in WPKN's history, our move across town to downtown Bridgeport. What better way to ask for your support than with two days of music, September 9th and 10th, celebrating the storied history of the hit factory known as the Brill Building. It's just a clothing store, isn't it? I mean, on the bottom floor. But all the best songs came out of that, didn't they? Just about all of them. Yeah, all the best songs. In this dirty old part of the city Where the sun refused to shine We gotta get out of this place Only WPKN and its audience can fully appreciate the impact this amazing stable of composers had on our music's history. Benny Goodman, Glenn Miller, Goffin and King, Lieber and Stoller, Neil Sedaka, Cynthia Wilde, Burt Bacharach, and many, many more, all headquartered at the Brill Building as they wrote classic song after classic song. And WPKN will play them all Thursday and Friday, September 9th and 10th. Join us here on your radio station, listener-supported WPKN. All you gotta do is hold it and kiss it and love it and show him that you care. The new Fairfield Health Director has arranged for the Griffin Hospital's mobile vaccination team to provide vaccinations in New Fairfield Saturday, August 28th from 9 to 5 p.m. at the New Fairfield High School parking lot located at 54 Gelati Road in New Fairfield. The Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson vaccines will be available. The clinic will vaccinate anyone over the age of 12. However, those under 18 must be accompanied by a parent. Vaccinations will be provided free of charge and will be open to everyone. If you have any questions or concerns about receiving a COVID vaccine, please discuss your concerns with your health care provider. 
A second dose of these vaccines will be provided in September. For more details about the vaccines and other mobile health services, you can visit the Griffin Hospital website at griffinhealth.org forward slash vaccination. If you need more details about this event, please call the Griffin Health COVID hotline at 203-204-1053. That's 203-204-1053. Hi, this is Cheryl McGovernie. I'm the host of My Soul, From Me to You, which airs the first and third Wednesday of the month from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. I bring you music that has touched my soul in one way or another, and I hope that it touches yours as well. You're listening to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, independent community radio, broadcasting from the campus of the University of Bridgeport, also streaming at WPKN.org. Thank you. 